0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: Margot, thanks for having me, and thanks to the National Committee, and I'm sorry I can't be there, um, I'm gra- uh, glad we have a nice, uh, a nice group on, on the line right now. And I would also just like to pass on um, my concerns. I hope everybody is home and healthy and safe, certainly here in the United Kingdom. I'm covering the coronavirus outbreak here. We just went into a soft lockdown in the UK today uh, and they're building a field hospital uh, in uh, London. Uh, at an exhibition center, not unlike what's happening at uh, in Manhattan with the Jacob Jaffetz Center. Um, to talk a little bit about this talk, I actually first gave uh, last summer uh, at Chatham House in um, London, the think tank. And then I went in October, I was at Oxford University also talking about it, uh, talking about this sort of the art of mutual disillusionment uh, particularly the Chinese people towards the U.S. government and increasingly uh, American people towards the Chinese government. And I'm very sorry to say that this topic is far more relevant in some ways than it was when I first gave these talks, uh, certainly where we find ourselves today, uh, particularly in the mi- midst of the coronavirus outbreak and how both countries are uh, handling it and and also uh, how they're responding to each other. Um, as Margo was saying, I had been in China for two stints, and what I decided I wanted to do when I came back, I had left in 2002, and when I returned in 2011, I wanted to find out what Chinese people thought about their country, uh, about themselves, and their place in the world, uh, effectively uh, from the ground up, and from their point of view, not cover it so much as an official government story. And I'd been a taxi driver uh, when i got gotten out of college in the 1980s, uh, in Philadelphia, where I'd grown up, and I drove a taxi for a, a, about a full year, and I got to meet all kinds of different people from all walks of life. And I found I understood the city much better as a taxi driver than I had in the previous 18 years that I had been um, that I had grown up there. And so, when I got back to uh, back to Shanghai and back to China, I thought, how can I find people? And the, can, the idea we came up with was to create this free taxi cab, which you can see here on your screen. Um, And we created signs um, calling it uh, and said that we were we would and a lot of people understood what this concept was about. Very quickly, Shanghai people are very smart. So I basically started driving and picking up lots of different people and hearing their stories. And what was really nice about this, as Margot was saying, is I turned kind of a, a foreign reporting process on its head working as a reporter in China, particularly an American reporter, you could ask some of my colleagues who are in the process of being expelled, is a very hard job. Uh, You carry a lot of baggage as an American, and also you're often forced to ask some fairly direct questions in a political and also social culture where that's not a great start with uh, strangers. So what was really fun about the taxi cab, and I I, I wasn't clever enough to realize this was going to happen, is when passengers would get into the cab, they would start interviewing me. They would say, where are you from? How many of these cabs do you have in China? Of course, the answer was I had one and I was losing money every day on it because it was free. Um, and they'd often say, you know, where did you learn your Chinese? Is your wife Chinese? That sort of thing. And by the end of the ride, often, most times, they had asked to connect on WeChat. So I had a way of following up with people. And what I found over about a year or so of driving is there were probably 10 or 12 people I got to know who I found very, very interesting. And I ended up following their lives for the next four or five years, not just in China, but a number of them moved around the world. So I met them in Europe and the United States. And it was a great way to get a sense of how the country was changing. And the country, of course, in that time was at an inflection point. It wasn't clear exactly what path the Communist Party would take and also what people thought. And so one of the, there were some themes I just like to discuss that I learned really from driving. I, I knew about them, but I feel like I really, it was really hit home to me by getting to know these different passengers. And one was this growing disillusion with the West and then a much more minor one, but I'd like to talk about a little bit is the distrust at home. And so <clears throat> to talk historically, you know, um, the, the two countries, these are, you know, continental powers. Going back for a couple of hundred years, there have always been these cycles of attraction and disillusionment. A colleague of mine, uh, John Pomfret, who's uh, write for The Washington Post, has written a very good book on this, uh, probably the book to understanding the way this relationship has worked. And of course, when people like Deng Xiaoping showed up in 1979 in Houston and in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, he was treated sensationally. Um, and if we were gonna go back and look at this most recent cycle, maybe a good place to start would be Tiananmen in 1989, when many of the student protesters, even if they didn't understand uh, American democracy that well and, and it, its challenges and also uh, what it meant to really respect the political opinions of others, uh, they've idealized the United States to a great extent, as we can see, as we all know from the goddess of democracy there, having been built and staring off directly at Mao's portrait. In my experience, when I started to notice things really begin to change was 1999. I was working for the Baltimore Sun in Beijing in the embassy district. And of course, back then, uh, NATO bombed the Belgrade embassy of of China uh, during the war. And the United States claimed it was a mistake, but the Chinese government certainly didn't agree. And many Chinese didn't think so either and they came out in enormous droves. And this was the first time where I saw opinion really clearly shifting. And one of the frustrations for many Chinese at that time, because I went out in the crowds, was a feeling of helplessness. They felt they were a strong country that should be respected, but they militarily couldn't do anything about the United States. And back then the Chinese economy was perhaps the size of Italy or Spain's. It was much, much smaller. They didn't have the international clout remotely that they do today. And then just flash forward, a year and a half later, there was this other incident that I covered that was very striking. And of course, for those who remember, there was an American spy plane that collided with a Chinese fighter jet. Uh, And the fighter jet went down. Um, The EP-3 spy plane had to land on Hainan Island. And the American crewmen were held by the Chinese government until a rather half-hearted apology was issued by the United States, and then they were released. And again, many Chinese, certainly the government, was also very frustrated that United States could fly spy planes so close to China, and China did not have those capabilities at all. And certainly, this was uh, resolved pretty amicably and without a lot of friction. But were this to happen today, I think it would be a totally different story, uh, given how much more power and confidence, at least outward confidence, that uh, the Chinese government expresses. And then when I returned to China in 2011, as Margaret was saying, I I took a lot of cabs before i bought my own cab and one of the things the cab drivers said to me early on was why do americans love war and what they were referring to of course was the afghan war but particularly the iraq war and the fact that the united states had waged war uh, under false pretenses there were no weapons of mass destruction and even among ordinary people there was this sense that the united states was wasting so much money and so many lives on wars when they should be spending it on things like infrastructure which is what the Communist Party was doing particularly with the bullet trains, as we've seen to great success. But I'd say another really big turning point was the global financial crisis. And that was uh, 2008, 2009. Um, That was a government in the United States that had been lecturing uh, Chinese government and many others about how to handle their internal finances and to manage their finances. And here, the United States had allowed this to happen, which was an epidemic that spread across the country and made uh, spread across the world and made a lot of countries poor, threw tons of people out of work. China weathered it quite well, did very heavy stimulus spending um, that that allowed the Chinese government and the Chinese people to get through it. There were a lot of layoffs, but China did better than most. And then um, I think the next, and the one that kind of brings us up to date is the questioning of of electoral democracy. And I'm going to mention a character, one of the people that I got to know and is in the book. Her name is Ashley. She's the daughter of Communist Party officials and had been to the States once, but then in 2016, moved to the United States because she was looking for a freer, more open life. And she'd become quite um, disillusioned with the system in China, especially the corruption, even as President Xi was attacking it. And she arrives at uh, an MBA in the States, and five months later, Donald Trump was elected. And I remember her saying to me, we stayed in touch, and I visited her in the States and also in Europe when she did uh, a summer abroad um, in uh, Paris, uh, how disappointed she was by this because she didn't feel like it made much sense. And it made her begin to question whether electoral democracy really worked very well. And she felt that many of the people that she'd gotten to know in the US were not that well informed. And I'll just give you one of her quotes. Uh, I'll just paraphrase it for you here. Um, She says, 10 years ago, back when I was 18, I had a lot of thoughts about American democracy that were idealistic. The first time I came to America in 2014, I started to see the ugly side. I think if you give people power, you have to prepare for stupidity because most people are ignorant. This was somebody who really had come up, uh, she is now in her early 30s, but she had come up in high school when there was a lot of writing about Tiananmen and about democracy. And she really had begun to change her mind with what she'd seen in the United States. And she'd become uh, more, I think, began to think of the efficiency of the authoritarian system in China um, with a much more positive viewpoint because of the ability to get things done. She looked at Capitol Hill and saw the gridlock there. Um, and it was very interesting, I've gotten to know her over a number of years to watch the arc of her thinking change. And I think there are probably quite a few students in the United States and also in other parts of the West who come to the West and come away with a, a different impression than what they thought they were going to find. Um, now, as I, I drove around the city for about uh, a year, but of course Shanghai is uh, no more representative of China than Manhattan is of, of the United States. So I decided it would be good to take a road trip. And I, I had done, uh, back in the 1990s, I had done a road trip back for Chinese New Year uh, by train. It had been you know the usual grueling hard seat to Anway Province. This time around though, of course, it's a very different country, uh, huge um, super highways, rental cars. So I rented a van and I went on Weibo and we offered to take people back home for Chinese New Year. And I met two guys here who you'll see, uh, to the left is Rocky who is a lawyer and his fiance Xiao Piao. And to the right is um, Charles who at that time was working as a salesman at a shipping parts company. So we started off off, uh, in Shanghai one morning and we drove 500 miles to Hubei province, which of course has been in the news quite a bit recently, and it was a long, grueling drive. But along the way, uh, as happens on all all drives like this, people began to open up and talk a lot more more freely about their thoughts about the way the country was changing and their frustrations with corruption, with a lack of free speech. And so in this process of being their driver home, I ended up taking on other roles when I was there. So uh, it was a couple of days later, uh, rocky, uh, had a wedding, he was marrying Xiao Piao, and I became the wedding chauffeur and the wedding photographer. So here we are pulling into the village and being met by this band with uh, ill fitting People's Liberation Army <laughs> uniforms. Uh, and of course, this is uh, Xiao Piao uh, is from, uh, of Korean heritage, so she's wearing a Korean hanbok, the tradi- traditional dress. And this is at a time where there are lots of fireworks going on. And of course, what wedding would be complete? without dancing aunties, of course. Now, um, what was interesting is that this gave me an opportunity to sort of not be a reporter and serve another purpose and kind of get to know people in a pretty stress-free environment. And then when I returned, I got to know uh, Rocky's brother, Ray, a lawyer also in Shanghai. And when I got back to Shanghai, I started uh, occasionally driving Ray back and forth to his office in Shanghai Tower, the tallest building in in Shanghai and one of the tallest in the world. And I can remember as, as an American reporter, I tried not to bring up politics and I just would wait and take my time until people decided they wanted to bring up their own points of view. And one of the things that Ray started to talk about was the South China Sea. And this was at a time a few years back when of course there was a huge island building campaign that we're all very familiar with. And Ray felt from his reading of history, and I should say that Ray, is pretty open-minded, he has a master's in law from the United States, from Illinois, he is pretty well read, I would say he's reasonably liberal but also supportive of the party and President Xi, but he really felt that China was doing the right things, that these were China's islands, and now that it was stronger, it should lay its claim to them. And again, this is one of his lines as I was driving him back home on the elevated one night uh, across Shanghai, he basically said this, he said, you know, China, last century had to focus on its own problems like the Cultural Revolution. China didn't have the resources to take care of these islands. Other countries took advantage and stole them when China was weak. And now China has the right to claim them back and the United States is showing up and telling them, you can't do this. And he said, it's just like a big boy in class bullying others. And that was something that there's definitely a variety of views on the South China Sea and other claims in the near seas but there are a lot of people who feel this way and not people who are nationalists. Ray is not a nationalist. Other people, most of the people that I drove, I would not describe as nationalists, but were supportive and saw the United States as trying to hem in um, the Chinese government. I'm just going to take a little detour here because there's another thing that came up when I talked to people uh, and I drove them and got to know them was sort of the distrust that many of you must be familiar with if you've lived a lot in china or spent a lot of time on the streets is sort of this distrust and just to give one example that i think is historic but also happened to one of my uh, one of the people that i drove you all probably be familiar with this infamous case in nanjing many years ago when a woman fell down at a bus stop and accused another man of pushing her down that man took her to a hospital And the judge ruled against him, uh, ruled that he should give her $7,000 because he couldn't think of why anybody would take someone to the hospital unless they'd actually been responsible for it. This created an uproar in China. Uh, It also made people very, very uh, wary of helping people on the street. The twist of the story that many people don't know is years later, this man actually confessed that he had pushed her down, and that was why he took her to the hospital, which was sort of a remarkable, kind of reinforced what people had thought. And you see this, sadly, uh, we've seen this on videos, of uh, people who fall, get hit by cars, and are not helped. And one of, the people that I, I, one of the people that I drove was a psychologist that I got to know. And I would drive her back and forth to see clients, and she told me one day that she had gone through this exact thing at this very intersection. She had, her knee was, uh, had been injured earlier, it gave out on a very wet day, and she went down in the intersection about five feet from the sidewalk, And there she was nursing her knee, and for 25 minutes, she sat with no one willing to help her, and she had to call for her parents to come get her. And a lot of this, there's a lot of history here that's been studied, but part of this also, uh, some people say, some uh, sociologists say that part of this has to do with a connection to sort of rural life, and that is the idea that you stay close to the people that you know well, whether it's family or small circles, and then when you make a massive urbanization like we've seen in China, you end up in these big cities where people don't feel the connection to each other. Uh, And certainly that's what this friend of mine, Fifi, had gone through uh, and talked about in her experience. And it also soured her uh, and made her always a bit wary of of the people that she saw. Um, I'd like to switch gears a little bit now and talk about the US side of the equation, the American people side of the equation. As everybody would be familiar, um, George Bush, Bill Clinton, they pursued engagement. And the hope at the time was that this would lead to a certainly a more liberal communist party, a more open communist party, not necessarily democracy, which probably wasn't particularly realistic. And I'd say that the hopes most recently would have been back in 2008. I was there for the Olympics in Beijing. And at that time, um, the government did open things up a lot more for foreign journalists. It It was a more open period, and of course, Uh, the Chinese people and the Chinese government did a spectacular job. It was really, uh, one of my best memories of that was actually in a rainstorm uh, with other sports reporters having to walk to a bus that was pretty far away and hundreds of young Chinese holding umbrellas above us, creating this canopy so that we could get to the bus in a downpour. And My friends who covered the Olympics before said they had never seen anything like it. But things turned pretty quickly after that. Liu Xiaobo, of course, the Nobel laureate, he was put in jail, eventually died of being denied uh, certain health care. And then with the rise of Xi Jinping, uh, 2012, 2013, things really began to turn in 2013, 2014. I remember when I got there in 2011, returned to Shanghai, Weibo was wide open. Uh, It was a constant source of stories I had never seen uh, so much openness on the Internet, but the Great Firewall, of course, got tougher and tougher. My kids uh, had trouble doing their homework in Shanghai. My daughter once said, I'd like to go to Seoul. And I said, why? Why are you in South Korea? It said, she said, because they have the fastest Internet in the world. Um, certainly by the time that I left, Weibo had pretty well been strangled. And the other thing we started to see from the Chinese government that would have been unthinkable 15, 20 years ago, is the Chinese government really trying to enforce its own narrative uh, on free-speaking countries that um, had free speech. So here, I did a story on this a couple of years ago. uh, Up at Durham University in the northeast of England, Um, there was a, uh, a debate on China. And the Chinese embassy, an official from the Chinese embassy, called and told the debating society that they had to get rid of one of their guests. And that if they did not, that it would affect Um, UK's post-Brexit trade deal with China. Now, the students at the University of Durham did not back down, they ran ran the program, but it really sort of reinforced their sense that the party at times, and certainly we've seen a lot more of this, was was actually trying to curtail free speech in other nations. Um, Certainly when President Xi and the party removed term limits, people who were following China, this was pretty alarming. To the people that I knew, my passengers, they were very cautious about talking about this. Some of them did honestly speak and said they were very unsettled because of Mao's history, uh, and they knew why there were term limits, and they were very concerned that while most of them were quite supportive of President Xi, they were very concerned about who might come in next or how long he might stay but they were very careful about talking about it. And then many of these people that I got to know told me very intimate things, sometimes things that even their other family members didn't even know. But when it came to the, the leadership and it came to the leader and this change in term limits, this was an area that really kind of left them unsettled. Things have continued <clears throat> in terms of attitudes of American people by and large towards uh, the party have continued to descend. Obviously, what happened in Xinjiang, not that a ton of Americans know about it, uh, but more do, and that only made people um, have a dimmer view. And then most recently, uh, I can talk about journalists, uh, as as I guess all of you have been following very closely um, after a headline, uh, which I didn't like, um, but but the party used that uh, as a reason to expel three journalists from the Wall Street Journal, very good reporters, Uh, and they left, and then of course what we saw uh, most recently, this tit for tat, um, President Trump limiting the reporters uh, who work for Chinese state-run agencies, and then an expulsion from people from the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. This is unprecedented in modern times. We've never seen anything like this. And I wouldn't say I was, uh, I guess I was shocked, but not surprised, I thought it was coming a little bit about that strategy. Um, I think that primarily this was done not because of a headline and not because of these reciprocity so much as I think that the Chinese Communist Party has seen many Western journalists, particularly the very good ones and investigative ones, as a thorn in their side. And they now feel that they don't have to put up with this anymore and they'd like to get rid of them. And, uh, President Trump created an opportunity and a headline in the, Washington, in the Wall Street Journal created an opportunity. But I don't know that this is going to work out that well for the government. And I say that because these are excellent journalists who will not stop covering China. They, in fact, will go back out in the world and they will cover the Chinese government's policies overseas and they'll probably do a very good job. And I guess I would also remind that this does become a bit personal. I'm sure most of you are very familiar with Matt Pottinger Uh, who advises uh, President Trump on Asia policy and China policy. Matt, as you probably also know, was a Wall Street Journal reporter. I knew him back in the 90s and early 2000s. He did tangle with government uh, thugs and was punched in the face once. And one has to think that Matt uh, remembers all of this very clearly, and it does colors people's opinion uh, when they've had that kind of a sort of up-close and personal experience. And finally, I'll just wrap up with where we are right now, which is sort of – I. I would be hard-pressed to think of a time when the relations between the two countries, which are the most powerful in the world, are so bad. And at a time when it would be better if they could work together on something that threatens the entire world. We've seen President Trump calling it the China virus to stick it to the Communist Party, even though that has clearly um, encouraged some people to treat Asians and Asian Americans um, despicably. Uh, certainly, it's happened a lot of my friends, and we've seen good stories on this uh, recently in the New York Times. But then you have Li Jian Zhao, uh, or Zhao Li Jian, uh, which is just remarkable, um, uh, a spokesman for the foreign ministry um, peddling conspiracy theories completely unfounded that the US Army was behind the coronavirus. And as he asks here in a tweet, the US should find out when patient zero appeared uh, in the United States, saying it all started there. Um, I'm just going to wrap up, and I'm really interested in your questions and your thoughts, because I don't think anybody knows exactly uh, where we're headed and maybe the sorts of things we might want to try to address uh, in this incredibly important relationship and and the way the people of both countries view the other governments. But I just have a couple of parting thoughts, and one is it would be a lot better right now if the governments of, of these two most powerful countries were working together and not blaming each other, which is really what they seem mostly focused on at the moment. And I would also say, and this is a minor thing, but I actually think it's really important. I see this when, I, when I'm broadcasting and also in uh, press reports. People should stop using the words China and America to describe the policies of the Trump administration and Xi's leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, Communist Party of China. Uh, it ends up personalizing things very much. So I try to be very careful whether I'm tweeting, whether I'm speaking, and I hope I haven't made a mistake today in doing this, but try to really differentiate because I think, you know, um, the the Communist Party would like China to think that the two are inseparable. And sometimes I think President Trump would like Americans or some Americans to think the two are inseparable. In fact, they're quite different and there are quite big disagreements on on critical policies uh, that the people of these countries have with their own leaders. And so I think what we should try to do is do everything we can not to personalize this because it has become way too personal. And I'm just going to, the final thing I'd just like to point out is My friend Ray, the guy that I, uh, Rocky's brother, the lawyer in Shanghai that I used to drive back and forth to his law firm, uh, he wrote me just uh, recently. And he's following what's going on here. I've been in touch with all of my passengers. We're still talking uh, often on uh, WeChat. And here's Ray reaching out uh, just on Friday, uh, saying he's concerned about what's happening in the United Kingdom. He's still under lockdown in Shanghai. And he's asked for my home address and asking if he can send me some face masks so that my family can be protected. So I'd like to end on that note because I think one of the things that the National Committee really works on and it's incredibly important is that we get to know the people of each country very well. Uh, And we study them, it's why I wrote this book, Um, it's why I'm coming on today in the midst of the coronavirus to talk about this. And uh, thank you very much for listening and um, happy to hear uh, any of your questions.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Frank, for a wonderful, really thought-provoking talk. We have a lot of questions. So we can start with some of the questions that were submitted in advance so that people who are listening now can formulate some questions. And please tell us your name and where you are when you write in. We have a question, and excuse me if I mispronounce your name, from Sam Choleckian of the University of Hawaii. And Starting where you ended, Frank, how do you think that China's foreign policy surrounding COVID-19, such as suggesting that the US military is responsible for it, will impact Sino-American relations?
1: Well, I think it's going to be, there, there There are several policies that one, and I want to say that that this is not coming directly out of the top of the government. It's primarily from people like Zhao Lijian, um, but getting it out there on Twitter. And the idea I think is to distract people from the initial mistakes that were made, sort of the downside of an authoritarian system like China's, where people are silenced as has happened in Wuhan. People were Obviously, the doctor, one of the doctors who discovered it was taken into custody and threatened. And the Chinese government, as any government, would want to distract from that. And so that's the purpose there. One, a couple of things, though, that we're seeing that I think are really interesting is China is now reaching out. Now that it has had, frankly, a very effective policy. And there are a lot of Chinese people who are very upset about what happened in Wuhan in the beginning but now are very happy and proud that the Chinese government and the draconian measures have really paid off. And some people do think that that is a sign of a part of the government, a part of the system that can work very effectively. What China's now doing is they're offering aid all over the place. Uh, and some of it may in fact not be aid, they're actually offering to sell things, but they're reaching out in Africa and elsewhere, uh, offering to help other countries. And particularly as the United States under an American, America First policy, That Donald Trump has espoused is not doing these sorts of things. I think the Chinese Communist Party very shrewdly is playing a, I'd say, a weak hand very well. Um, This started in China, there's no doubt about this, but what they're doing now is using the example of their ability to stop this, the spread in China, uh, as a platform to saying, look, our system's quite good, and we will help you. And with the vacuum that's been created, particularly Um, it's been before President Trump, but certainly since President Trump in the world, this is an opportunity actually for China to do quite well in continuing to make inroads in different parts of the world and improve and strengthen relations with lots of other countries. Great.
0: Following up on your uh, comments about working together, this is a question from Alexander Tien. He doesn't say where he is. What do you think would be the best first step for these two countries to work better together?
1: I think uh, stopping the name calling, and I'm glad that President Trump um, has backed off a bit and I think in the last 24 hours hasn't called it the China virus. Uh, and I think they do need, in the past, there have been areas where despite big differences between China and the United States, they were able to find places to work together. Um, That certainly has been broken down under President Xi and President Trump, and I think the first thing to do is to stop both sides probably trying to stop, use this for their political advantage, and find a way to work together, because it also threatens the global economy. I mean, it's not just China and the United States, the two largest economies, but we um, we could see a global depression. Uh, it's, it's quite possible if these lockdowns last a long time and if these two countries don't see the mutual interest in just keeping the engines of, of the global economy going uh, and are continuing to just try to score political points, um, boy, it really is cutting off your nose to spite your face. So I think they, it would be great if they called a truce and they started figuring out ways um, to keep the global economy going together.
0: Here's a question from Chris Merck here in New York. Hi, Chris. Given the long history of CCP slash government harassment of foreign journalists, which was not mitigated by allowing many more Chinese journalists to work in the U.S. than China allowed allowed into China, how should the press relationship be managed by the U.S.?
1: A great question, Chris, and as you know, a lot of people are divided, uh, even in the journalistic community. I think one of the difficulties is, business as usual was not working for American journalists. The fact of the matter is, uh, I don't often a- agree with things that President Trump says, um, but it was tot- a totally unleveled playing field. Um, I don't think that this has worked out well. I mean, I think that, you know, where do we go from here? I, I I see continued deterioration um, on both sides, and also, you know, Chinese the Chinese journalists who work for CCTV or uh, other or Xinhua are not the same as reporters who work for Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. The people who work for the Post and the Journal are not uh, working for the state, uh, so it isn't it isn't a fair uh, it isn't a fair situation. I hope for now there's a bit of a truce. I think if you continue to see a tit for tat, things will only decline. I think both both countries, both governments have made their point. I don't know where we go from here, though, because with this kind, these kinds of mass expulsions, particularly the mass expulsions of the American reporters, who are different than many of the Chinese reporters, um, that's going to stick in people's minds. I, I don't know whether they, I mean, the purpose is to intimidate reporters and the, uh, American reporters and, and other foreign reporters Uh, in China. But I don't think it's going to improve the coverage. And I think that to the degree that reporters are willing to give a a country's government the benefit of the doubt, um, they wonder why they would do that when they're facing mass expulsions.
0: Okay, we have a question from Kathy Barbash in New York and previously uh, Philadelphia. How have the views of Chinese people changed over the past 20 years? And do you see any generational differences?
1: I think there are lots of generational differences. And of course, a generation in China, um, in some cases, is about three years. Some of the people that I, uh, because things have changed. So we we used to say when we lived there, and I I mean, Kathy's been in my office in Shanghai. We've seen each other uh, there years ago. Um, I always felt like a year in China was about equal to three years in the West because things moved so quickly or vice versa. Um, a year in the West was about three years in, uh, I guess China moves about three times the speed. And so then you have sort of every three or four years, you really do have a different generation. I do think, and I don't want to stereotype because we're talking about 1.4 billion people. I do think younger Chinese, uh, and I'm thinking more, you know, everybody from 21 to 25 or so, um, they do tend to be more nationalistic Um, they missed the openness of the internet. Uh, I think the propaganda has been much better and more effective. The Chinese Communist Party has gotten very good at propaganda, frankly. And so I think that they're very different. Say, uh, Ashley, the person I talked about at the beginning of our conversation, she actually, when she was studying in Paris on her summer at a, at a MBA program in Paris, she would get into arguments with people three or four years younger. And she's like, I don't even know how to talk to these people. I don't know how I'm going to get along with them, but I'm going to manage them in the workplace. And I understood where she was coming from because she had come of age when the Internet was still relatively open and she was able to read a lot of information. Now, of course, we also know that younger people come to to the West. But by the time they've come here, in many cases, they've come up through an educational system that's pretty effective at, in some cases, creating a filter uh, in their own, from creating their own perspectives and rejecting things that they read in a lot of places or even things that they see. I had a remarkable experience in Trafalgar Square um, during the Hong Kong protests, in which I was trying to interview Chinese uh, Chinese <clears throat> students who were very aggressive and they were interview they were, uh, they were videotaping me while I was trying to talk to them and they rejected everything that they read in the Western press and said it was all lies and that Hong Kong was basically backed by foreign forces. and I don't know how much of that they actually believed, but it was amazing to actually feel the authoritarian weight of the party in Trafalgar Square. And it felt like certain places where I've been in certain moments in parts of China. That to me was a revelation.
0: A follow-up question in a way, although she wrote it before you just spoke. This is from my colleague, Jessica Bissett. Um, she says, Frank, you said that you wouldn't characterize most of the people who rode in your taxi as nationalist. For those individuals who you could say held nationalistic views, did they have anything in common, age, educational background, etc.?" Through my work, I've gotten the impression that more and more younger, highly educated Chinese, including those who have studied in the U.S., have over the past few years become much more openly nationalistic.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, again, its I don't want to paint it with a broad, broad brush, but exactly what I saw in Trafalgar Square. I mean, if I'd been in Trafalgar Square 10 years ago talking to Chinese students, it would have been a very different conversation. It just... Um, it would have been a very different conversation.
0: We have a question from somebody who has understandably chosen to remain anonymous. I am Chinese, and I have been studying in the U.S. for six years. I find it very hard to talk about China without people associating everything with the CCP, i.e., if you say something positive about China, people immediately think you're communist slash brainwashed by the CCP. How would you go about solving or addressing problems like this?
1: That's a great question, and I think that's part of the problem. I can tell you that when I was in in China in the 90s, I was relatively supportive of the Chinese Communist Party. I didn't like that they were authoritarian, I didn't like the way they treated people, but I thought they managed a very difficult situation in China relatively well it's a hard place to manage, as everybody who's lived there knows. Um, It wasn't something I would share widely for the same reasons you're concerned as well. I think what I would do is, um, to the degree that you can, and it's hard, is just develop good friendships. Um, I, I can say, if you have a chance to read the book, there are a lot of positive things about the Communist Party in the book. A lot of the book is about what we've all seen in the last 25 to 30 years, which is unprecedented improvement in people's livelihoods. And so many of the people who I drive did not exist 15 years earlier. They just want people like this. Their lives are much better. They are much more sophisticated. They're easier to talk to for other people around the world. What I would encourage you to do is find people who you can develop good trusting friendships with, but it is it is difficult. The other thing is, we all have to admit, we all can be a bit nationalistic. I mean, one thing that American American people and Chinese people have in common is they're pretty nationalistic countries. I mean, uh, I live here in in England where if you wave a flag, people say, hey, easy with that, easy with the flag. But I grew up with Fourth of July parades in my neighborhood with people waving flags all the time, uh, not unlike what you might see in China. I think one thing I would say is that it's important to be honest about the shortcomings of the government in charge in your own country. Uh, As I've done in this conversation and as I also do in the book, um, there are a lot of shortcomings. And there are reasons, there are good, solid reasons why um, a lot of Chinese people became disillusioned with the U.S. government. But I would encourage you to also just be honest and try not to be defensive, because I think it's normal for all of us to be a bit defensive when we're in a foreign country and people are assailing the government of our our home nation.
0: We have a question from Bert Keitel, George Washington University. He actually sent in two, but I'm going to ask just one. Why would Chinese local authorities be so concerned about online rumors, rumors of a new SARS-like coronavirus, the way local officials in Wuhan were concerned at the initial stages of the COVID-19 outbreak?
1: Um, I think generally, and I didn't cover this, obviously, a lot of people did. Uh, But I think Bert obviously knows China very, very well, in many ways, probably better than I, he has a much longer history there. Uh, I think people are always the natural inclination, uh, particularly at the local level is to cover things up. I certainly found it all the time when I would go on investigations and not get in trouble from the central government. And so, as, as Bert well knows, there's this history of The central government blaming the local authorities for doing something and never addressing the fact that the system is designed this way. And so people naturally cover up because they're afraid of getting in trouble um, and hoping, in this case, hoping that it wasn't going to be something huge. Um, And I also think to some degree, frankly, it's 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 reflexive in all my years working in China, for the most part, with some exceptions, people are always trying to cover things up. Uh, and never really dealing with them directly. I think Ju Rongji, I remember this press conference, which people have been writing about recently. I was at a press conference when the former premier, this was probably late 90s, early 2000s. There had been a schoolhouse, if I remember correctly, and you know, I want to say Jiangsu province had blown up. And it had blown up because they were making the kids make fireworks. And locally, they lied about the entire thing because they knew what was going to happen. Well, lots of reporters went down there. We called people. We saw people. In fact, people were using the school as a factory to make fireworks. Zhu Rongji read about this in the Washington Post, in the New York Times, and elsewhere, and said it was really good to know this. Uh, and he said, we shouldn't be in the business of this sort of thing anyway. It shouldn't be covered up, and this has to be addressed. Um, that was a, a much more hopeful moment. Uh, and, but what we see certainly with Xi Jinping, I mean, he is not somebody other than with corruption, and we know that he's benefited, he's used that also for his own political purposes. He's not the kind of guy, I mean, certainly if I were a local official and and some kind of SARS, uh, some kinds of, of SARS virus broke out, I wouldn't go to Xi Jinping, I would probably try to cover it up because so many people have suffered under this system. And you know that punishment is sort of the, the reflexive, the first reflex uh, certainly of the central government has been punishment.
0: We have a question going back in a way to what you were saying about Ashley and other people becoming less attracted to the United States. This comes from Rod Azama of the Chancellor Group. What might be causing those who now are less attracted to the US? Are there similar feelings towards Europe, Canada, and the Asian democracies? How can we change the views of those who now view the US and other democracies less favorably?
1: Um, Get better results from the democracies, frankly. How about that? I mean, I think that really, you know, people are results, I mean, people in China, like anywhere, are results-oriented, and they have seen some good results from the Communist Party over the last 30 years. Forget the previous 30 years, that's another story. Um, But they have seen good results. And if you look at the results of, say, the United States government, they've not been very good for quite a lot of years. I mean, the gridlock that we've seen on Capitol Hill and now the hyper, hyper partisanship. I covered Capitol Hill in the 90s and it is unrecognizable in terms of what's going on there. And also in Europe, um, I don't know, it's a funny thing. I I know that Chinese, young Chinese go to Paris and they're a bit disappointed. It's not quite, maybe a lot of people are disappointed. Um, But I think that what, Western democracies need to do also is to make policy decisions that reflect the values that they espouse that are attractive in the first place. You can't have soft power if you don't back up your ideals. And I think that that's a problem in the West to varying degrees. Um,
0: This is from another colleague, Jonathan Lowett in Brooklyn, New York. Without giving away too many trade secrets, when speaking with Chinese strangers who climbed into your taxi, what strategies or techniques did you use that you feel put them at
1: ease? Uh, I tried not to get lost. The first time first times I was driving, I got completely lost and it was totally embarrassing. And if you know Shanghai at all, I was picking them up in Lu way and in parts of Pudong and instead of dropping them off in the right place, I took the wrong tunnels to the wrong sides of town. But the people were so entertained by the whole thing and it was so bizarre that they were like, yeah, you know, I mean, this is one of the great things about Chinese people is they've seen everything and they've seen everything change at such a great pace that nothing phases them and they find everything interesting and curious. So also the fact that I wasn't charging any money, expectations were incredibly low for me. So, I mean, that was an advantage. I wouldn't even say it was so much trade secrets. It was more, I don't, I mean, I'm I'm more cautious. I'm, I'm, I'm more reserved with Chinese strangers than I would be with Brits or certainly Americans, but more than anything, it was just, like these open-ended questions, just about where they were from and what they were doing and what they thought of the city, and usually waiting for a stray comment that was really interesting and it was uh, an opening. So sometimes they would give you openings. I'll give you an example. I was at a ferry stop, the Lu ferry stop uh, on the Puxi side of the Shanghai River. I mean, of the Huangpu, and there, there were, I was waiting there because I was kind of looking for people who didn't have much money and. It's about 30 cents to take the ferry and I love the ferry. And I was usually the only white guy on the ferry. Um, But it's a wonderful, it's cheap and it's a great, great view. And uh, it was not far from my uh, apartment. And there was a guy on like a white beat up old kind of Vespa. And we were just chatting and a lot of people were looking at my cab and asking questions. And this guy simply said, oh, you know, you're from the States. My, My wife and kids are in Los Angeles. And I said, really? And he didn't, he was not wealthy at all. He was a pajama salesman uh, and, and sort of very working class. And I wondered how he got his kids to the States. And, and then he, uh, he asked if I was a Christian. I thought that's a very interesting question, uh, because I was doing something that I wasn't charging for. And I, in fact, did go to church on the other side of the river. And so we exchanged contacts and a week later, he invites me over to a get together at his house, not saying what it is, but I have a pretty good idea. And sure enough, I walk into an underground house church for dinner. And so it's that sort of thing where you just try to listen carefully to the little clues that people give you and then see if you can pursue those. Um, a lot of it was, you know, it was like it was like 100 first dates. You drive a lot of people who are not that interesting <laughs> and you hear the same stories. But you wait for something that says, wow, there's something really interesting about this person. There's an interesting story here.
0: Here's another book question from Matthew Chitwood of the Institute of Current World Affairs. Did you ever have any passengers who were rural residents, migrant workers, rural oh, yeah. lights, perhaps on a first vacation to see the lights of China's cities? after That's... a pilgrimage to Beijing, of course. <clears throat> and how did their views or questions or hopes and fears differ from those of your urban passengers?
1: They were pretty, um, if you've been, you, obviously you've been to Shanghai and you know what it looks like. I mean, it's particularly that part of Lujiazui is sort of the Emerald City, as envisioned by the Chinese Communist Party. It's a theatrical scrim to impress foreigners, It was originally designed to bring in as much foreign investment as possible and also to dazzle people from the provinces. And one of my favorite, and I describe this because there was one guy, there was a guy in the book who this happens to, he, um, he grows up, I get to know him, he grows up in a little village in Yunnan province and he's a barber and he finally makes it to Shanghai after one of those migrant sojourns, you know, of like a couple of years around the country. It's always tough scrounging. And he comes and he walks up the steps. And there he had seen Shanghai in movies in his little village where they had sheets for uh, movie screens. And they had it between the basketball, backboard and a building. And he would watch movies and he'd seen Shanghai, uh, the old Shanghai in those movies. And then he walks up the steps and there is Luja's way and the incredible towers. And he ends up spending the night he uh, doesn't have any place else to stay. He sleeps on a bench and then wakes up in the morning and there are all kinds of people there and he watches the sunrise. And I think for people like that, um, I think they find it remarkable. And that's why a lot of people stay. It is, it's a very dynamic city. Um, a lot of the characters in the book are migrants and they've lived there for quite some time, including this barber. His name is, English name is Max. And of course, it's a very hard city to live in because if you're a migrant, you don't enjoy full healthcare benefits, of course, under the hukou system, or school benefits, education for your kids. And you live in pretty tough circumstances, and I spend a lot of time in people's homes. And so Shanghai, like Manhattan, but even more so probably, um, there's a huge income chasm there. So I think also, I have characters who love Shanghai, but also passengers who, one of them, a guy named Charles, who I drove, one of the people I drove home for Chinese New Year, who refers to it just as an ATM. It's just a way to get money. He's never going to be a part of the city. He's never going to have a connection with people there. He's there to make as much money as he can to fund his family back home in Hubei province.
0: Your characters in the book, and I'm asking a question on my own behalf, not reading one, are by and large very successful in Shanghai. There's the one woman who's the victim of the Ponzi scheme, which is pretty appalling. But for the most part, you characterize very successful people, yet you're saying that it's hard and they didn't like it.
1: Charles has struggled. Um, Charles doesn't like Shanghai, uh, and he has struggled. And his family's now living with him. I was, I am mean, again, I'm, I'm in touch with people often every week. Um, Charles is living with his family. He's much happier because they've come and lived with him. But it's been difficult. Um, And I think financially, it's very, very hard. It's hard, it's still, you know, income has, incomes have risen, but prices have risen. And especially housing prices have risen far, far faster than income. Um, And so people do struggle. But I also think if you take the long view, which I try to do in this book, every character, but I also would say this is true of so many people I know in China, and it's part of the reason there is a lot of support and justified support for the party is Their lives are almost always materially much better than their parents' lives. And, you know, people respond to that as they would in any society. If the government oversees this sort of thing, uh, this kind of of economic growth that benefits people, um, people are appreciative for it.
0: We have a listener in Shaman, which is pretty amazing. It's rather early there. Lauren, he asks, will you do a follow-up on the group from the book to see how they are after the virus? I feel a connection to them now.
1: Well, that's very nice. Thank you. They're all doing well, by the way. Everybody has been pretty much sheltering um, and, and no one has the virus. I think they're, you know, they're exhausted. I think actually they've been going through for the last 50 days what many of us in the United States and here in Europe are in the process of going through as well. Um, I may. I mean, I I think it might be a good idea. I'm going to be swamped with coronavirus stories, I think, for the next number of weeks, maybe a couple of months. But I think it would be very interesting to go back and talk to them and do a story on what they've learned and what they make of this whole experience, because it is a mixed experience, from the suppression of the information to then the government uh, putting in these policies that seem to have had a a very big impact on the growth of the virus. So it might be an interesting idea. Thank you.
0: And we have a question from somebody else, I think you know, Joan Kaufman of Schwarzman Scholars.
1: Hi, Joan, I wish I could see you.
0: She says, how have your own views changed, I assume views of China in the last 25 years, are you more positive or more negative about China?
1: That's a great question. I think I'm more realistic, probably. I think like some Westerners, you go there and you think uh, you tend to be more optimistic about liberalization. And I came there, you know, I can't I can't believe we say this these days, but gee, you sort of missed Jiang Zemin, that era, the Jerome G era. Um, but I think I was more optimistic then. I think in the short term, I'm, uh, I'm more pessimistic. I think in the longer term, I'm still relatively optimistic. I, I think that the government does a lot of these things because it's insecure and because it knows that there are fundamental problems with this model that it cannot address without giving up power. Um, and I do think people are becoming much more sophisticated, although the propaganda and, and the censorship has worked very, very well, better than many of us would have imagined back in the 1990s. In the long run, though, I, I think that it makes sense that people who are wealthy and travel and are sophisticated will want more security. Uh, and security meaning legal security and basic sorts of things that are the building blocks and, and more civil society. But I think it could be quite a long ways till we get there. Um, and I think we're going to have to see what happens with um, Xi Jinping, how long he is in office for and the other things that he does. Um, But short-term pessimistic, long-term, I guess particularly from the characters that I got to know, my passengers, more optimistic in the long run.
0: Another anonymous question. Did your conversations with Chinese people in the past few years touch on the new quote unquote social credit score system being implemented in China? If so, what are their views on these systems? And are there differing views among Chinese inside China versus overseas?
1: That's a good question. Um, I didn't touch on it a lot because some of it was being put in after I left. I found that there were people, first of all, um, rightly or wrongly, uh, people felt it, a lot of people felt it was not as big a threat as it was necessarily perceived to be overseas because these different systems are not connected and they 're not working together yet. Um, I do think that what 's happened with cameras is unbelievable. Now we have tons of cameras in London, but the proliferation of cameras is extraordinary and i 've noticed i was uh, times that i 've been back since working on the book um, i 've just noticed cameras everywhere. Um, I don't think people were as alarmed by social credit, Um, but I think one thing that's interesting is with the the coronavirus outbreak, Mm -hmm. people downloading apps and things like that that are allowing the government to track them more closely. And certainly what we've seen in Xinjiang is very concerning. There's a sense, certainly among some Chinese, although they don't, it's interesting, Um, a lot of Chinese don't know that much about what's been happening in Xinjiang. I find, or they prefer not to discuss it for obvious reasons. Um, But I don't think the social credit system probably got more coverage overseas than it, than it concerned the average Chinese person. I do have friends uh, who said, you know, I'm an honest person. I actually think it's good that people get punished for bad behavior. And if it changes the way people behave on the streets, which is one of the themes in the book as I was talking about earlier with Fifi and falling in the street and no one helping her. He, you know, he said, and these are liberal people. These are not nationalists and not authoritarian people who are uh, particularly sympathetic to the authoritarian system. They actually thought things are so bad on the streets. Uh, maybe this will help a bit.
0: Related to surveillance, although he doesn't say this, I, I am prefacing it with that. There's another question from Chris Merck. What did the Shanghai police make of your taxi project?
1: It's a great question, Chris. Um, So I started driving and of course I did it for free so I wouldn't violate the law. I wouldn't be taking money from taxi drivers. Initially, I wanted to like put a, a roof lamp on, but you're not allowed to do that. So we came up with a magnetic sign so we could also take them off at any time we needed to. The Shanghai, I must have passed I don't know, hundreds of cops. Not a single one pulled me over. Uh, the Ministry of State Security knew exactly what I was doing. I know that people who were monitoring me knew what I was doing. I heard secondhand, they liked the stories. They related to some of the characters. They said, oh, these are really good stories. I know people just like this. And that's sort of, I think, a good thing about a human interest, these human interest stories and this kind of approach is that you draw in, not just listeners in the United States, but even the people who are spying on you or introducing the stories. And I just don't think that they saw this as something that they uh, wanted to shut down.
0: Let's see, we have a question from a British listener, uh, Peter Burgess of truevaluemetrics.org. I am a Brit who migrated to the USA in the 1960s. The economic progress of China during the last 30 years has been astonishing, funded in large part by American corporate outsourcing. The economic decline for perhaps 80% of Americans in the past 30 years has been catastrophic, with essentially no solution in sight. What is the answer to this conundrum?
1: Well, I think there, it's too late. Um, The jobs, I did track jobs that went from the United States. I spent time, I spent about two years, three years, tracking jobs that went, for instance, from North Carolina furniture factories to uh, to factories in Dongguan City. And so I knew the people who had the jobs and then I met the people who got them. That has already largely happened. And many of those jobs, as I think you know, now are no longer in Dongguan City. Dongguan has changed and those jobs are now in the interior where they've moved on to Vietnam, into Africa and things like that. And so in terms of manufacturing, I think that that ship sailed long ago. Um, The real battle, and I think what's behind the tariffs is the battle over um, AI and the high quality jobs. And I think what you're seeing between President Trump, who isn't using necessarily the right tools at all, and President Xi, is they are in a battle over what are going to be the high value jobs of the next 20 or 30 years. Because President Xi has a young generation we've just been talking about who has never known less than 6% uh, annual GDP growth, which means there's no generation like them in human history and their expectations are off the charts. I don't know how he's gonna meet those expectations and I'm sure he keeps him up at night. President Trump also realizes that as a businessman and the way he sold himself, to the American voter is he's got to deliver on the economy. It was what he intended to run on in November. He probably won't be able to do that given the coronavirus. So I think the bigger issue is um, these high value jobs in the future and also protecting um, IPR. And it has not been a fair system. The IPR system in China has improved legally, but when the Chinese government really wants to get at IPR, it does so. It has not been a level playing field. I think the attitudes of a sea change, Uh, if you look at the way business people in the late 90s in Beijing were huge supporters of the Communist Party, because they did very well. Even back then they were losing money, but they were gaining market share, and they did very, very well. They now feel that it's a very unlevel playing field, and they're very frustrated, and even people who don't like President Trump's policies or the way he talks, they were glad to see him do something, even if tariffs did not make any sense. Uh, in, in terms of the kinds of tools that he's using.
0: So some of these issues, as you just stated, preceded President Trump and President Xi, and presumably will outlast at least President Trump. We don't know whether President Xi is stepping down anytime soon. Bill Armbruster in New Jersey asks, what are the prospects for any kind of significant improvement in US-China relations in the coming years, especially post-Trump?
1: Well, it depends on how long Trump is in. Um, and we'll have to see what happens in November. Um, it's, I don't think it's going to be easy. I think that President Xi is a very assertive nationalist, unlike any one we've seen in many, many years at the top of the Communist Party. Uh, I think there are certainly people in the party and among the intelligentsia who think that he's overplayed his hand uh, and he's, he's actually hurting China and being too aggressive and not realizing that there are benefits of trying to work with the United States and not being so aggressive. I mean, under Xi and even before, they managed to alienate American business this was, not, this was not wise. I would have never, if I'd worked inside Zhongnanhai, and I would never, obviously, no one would care what I thought. But if I were advising the Communist Party, even if I was working for them, I would have told them not to do these things. These are people who have influence in the White House. Um, to completely alienate them and make them feel like they're being ripped off all the time is a really bad policy, unless you think the United States is utterly doomed. That's a hell of a gamble. And I think there are a lot of people who think this is really dumb. I've seen him do things, President Xi, that have really surprised me. Um, Moves that I think were very unwise, that made me think he doesn't understand America and he doesn't understand the world very well. There are other things domestically he's done that were brilliant. I mean, the anti-corruption campaign and using that to get rid of his enemies, fantastic. Wonderful populist campaign, even my most liberal friends We're supporting him and cheering him on. But I think with foreign relations, he just, he seems off, frankly. And I don't think sometimes that he's really helping uh, the country.
0: Here's a question from Abby Zhang at Boston University. As a Chinese student studying in the US, we are all concerned about policies restricting our visas. Do you think that COVID-19 will give the governments of the two countries an excuse to intensify the international relations and affect our education programs?
1: Abby, I really hope not because I think it's good to have Chinese students here. I think the more exchanges uh, on either side of the Pacific are better and the more student exchanges and the less Uh, worries me a lot. I certainly hope not. Certainly, there should be no concern about Chinese people bringing uh, the coronavirus to the United States now. I mean, scientifically, that's the problem is not the borders. But President Trump has used that, I think, as an excuse to play to his base, where he has run a base re-election campaign from day one. And I think he uses that for his own purposes. There's no scientific reason to think that closing the borders really makes much difference when clearly There's so much community spread in the United States. We have a lot of community spread here in the United Kingdom. I certainly hope that doesn't happen. And I hope that both countries, uh, and certainly as President Xi has to some extent, continue to focus on fixing their problems at home, their healthcare problems at home and working together and not again using it for other purposes, which I think in the long run are not good for ties between the two countries. So I hope you get to stay.
0: And here's a question that, in a a way, is the inverse from an anonymous submitter. Recently, students who returned from studying abroad to China due to the coronavirus have been attacked heavily on Weibo. Do you think this has something to do with the Chinese government's standpoint toward the US, since Weibo is now heavily influenced by the government?
1: I don't know how have people if he can if this person can respond and say how have people been attacked for retur- how have returning students been attacked in China uh, and is he talking about foreign students coming back or no, China-
0: Chinese, students Chinese students returning
1: and how are they being attacked in what way
0: I don't know we'll have to see if he that's, a very, if he that's a very interesting question
1: it's a very interesting question
0: um let's see if something else comes in. Um, We have a question from Roy Sheldon in Bergen County, New Jersey. The unfortunate politicization reminiscent of Korean war propaganda Mm. by both the U.S. and China have contributed to diverting attention from what appears to be the root cause of SARS and the coronavirus wet markets with both domesticated and exotic live animals in close proximity with dense urban populations. Is U.S. or global cooperation with China a possibility to address this ongoing issue in China and elsewhere?
1: I don't know, Uh, and I'm going to be very, very interested to see uh, once China gets back on its feet and people begin moving around more, and things open up, I'll be very interested to see what wet markets look like. Uh, I'm not an epidemiologist, I haven't studied this that closely, but I spent a lot of time in wet markets, and they are not the healthiest places. And I would suspect that, uh, you know, this is a really interesting thing. This problem began in Hubei province, and it's now affecting the world. And that's something that China can't afford to have that happen again politically. Uh, this could affect people's thoughts about decoupling from China. There's already some decoupling going on. Uh, and people think about supply chains. There's a friend of mine at the University of Pennsylvania who focuses on domestic Chinese governance and law and things like that. And he said, you know, people are never that interested in talking to me because they don't think what happens in domestic Chinese governments affects governance affects the world. And he said, now look at this. And I think that this is a great example of also, how important it is that the Chinese system not only work well in China, but also for the world, because it can have sort of this outsized influence that wouldn't have been true 25 or 30 years ago in a less globalized world and where you had fewer Chinese traveling, that sort of thing. So I, I can't imagine that there wouldn't be very serious discussions about how to prevent this from happening a second time, because a second time would be would be devastating.
0: There is. um I don't know whether it's legislation, formal legislation or regulation now banning exotic animal trade in China. I think the question is whether it will actually be enforced.
1: Yeah, and I I have seen some of that as well. Um, I think, you know, I would think it would have to be enforced. And I also think that the party when it really wants to enforce things can be very, very good at that. That's one of its strengths.
0: Okay. We have another question from Bert. a different one from the earlier one submitted. Great to see and hear you. What is your evaluation of the Belt and Road Initiative? The charges of a quote-unquote debt trap don't hold up, but is BRI predatory or an important contribution to the world's future infrastructure needs?
1: Um. I don't know enough about it. It's not something that I've studied that closely and I've, I've seen very mixed sorts of, I mean, I think you can make a variety of arguments. I think the need for infrastructure is absolutely there in the developing world. Before I went to Shanghai in 2010, I was in Nairobi and the Chinese, uh, Chinese construction companies were building the first superhighway in East Africa. And I was very supportive of it because I was used to driving really bad roads in Nairobi. And only the Chinese could do it. And, and back then, the Kenyans were very supportive of it as well. It has been mixed. There have been situations where people have ended up losing their ports and things like that. So I think, you know, China needs to be cognizant about the way that it will be it will be uh, perceived. But I'll be honest with you, Bert, it's not an area of my expertise. It's a great question but probably not one I'm, I'm, I'm best suited to answer.
0: We have another question from Lauren in Xiamen. What do you think of restaurants here in China that are now banning foreigners because of the virus outside China? Why can't they see the hypocrisy here?
1: Yeah, um, I can't say I'm surprised and I've, I've certainly encountered that on both sides of the Pacific, but yes, I think that um, you make, you make a very good point. And perhaps they're also, I, I don't know who's running the restaurants, but you know, a lot of people run restaurants or not, especially ordinary restaurants are not the most sophisticated and thoughtful people and they respond to what they read and what they hear. Um, but yes, that's uh, that would seem pretty hypocritical considering how many Chinese people felt That they were mistreated and justifiably so. I mean, a lot of, I mean, you know, lots of Chinese people were very mistreated in the West um, just because this came out of Hubei.
0: Well, and I would say, I think you mentioned this at the beginning of your talk the article in today's New York Times about (laughs) the attacks on Chinese Americans and Asian Americans here. It was absolutely appalling to read
1: that. And I saw it a lot on my Twitter feed with a lot of my friends. And of course, people who've not spent much time in Asia are not, Americans in particular, are not capable of even distinguishing where somebody is from. Um, So that's sort of doubly insulting.
0: We have an answer to the, or an explanation from the guy, the person. I don't know whether it's male or female asking about Chinese students returning from the West being attacked on Weibo. It's been said that they are wasting the country's money because people on Weibo claim that they did not contribute to China. Also, certain groups are opposed to them entering China, saying that if they left the country, they shouldn't come back when they need help. So basically saying they only come back to their country when they realize Western countries can't help them.
1: I have, because I've been very caught up with coronavirus here, I've not followed that line of thinking, and I don't know how prevalent it is on law. But if it is prevalent, it's very alarming, because it also means that there are people who are really seeing the world very much as us and them, and also treating people who go to other countries to study as effectively traitors. And we certainly, I can tell you as a journalist, working with Chinese assistants, who were terrifically helpful to almost all foreign our reporters couldn't operate well without very good far, uh, domestic staff. I would do interviews and then privately, people would turn to them sometimes and say, "You know, why do you work for the foreigners? Why do you betray our country? And I mean, it was really, and it's much worse now. Um, so there is, and I think that that's ultimately fomented by the, state, the state-run media. And that's part of the propaganda is it's very much us and them. Uh, and they don't want actually these bridges built uh, some people, people who are very hardline inside the party and in the propaganda ministry, don't want that to happen. And that's, I think maybe that's what you're seeing.
0: I think Abby Zhang from BU is responding to this. She writes Weibo is blaming the Chinese students for bringing the virus home. Many Chinese students got into trouble for being inf- infected outside of China and coming home. <sighs>
1: It's a complicated time with uh, people being blocked everywhere. We have a number of our correspondents overseas now. We got a message from, I'm sure everybody saw it from the US State Department saying, if you're overseas, you either come home now or you stay in place. And we have some correspondents in places that are frankly very dangerous and where things could deteriorate quickly. And they've had to make sort of very difficult decisions about to stay and try to cover the story or to protect their families.
0: We have a question from Mike in Seattle. This is changing the subject. Why did the CCP choose to go in a more authoritarian route versus continuing to liberalize around 2010 after such a successful 08 Olympics? Was there a catalyst or is it more due to Xi specifically?
1: Well, certainly we saw things really change when she came into power. But I think that there's, I mean, one of the challenges for the party is that, um, you know, it's never like this idea of peaceful evolution, which people have talked about in the West, because they see people like Xi, he's very upfront about this, sees the idea of constitutionalism and the rule of law as it's a zero sum game. And that the more you build in these protections and you institutionalize them for uh, the Chinese people, the less power the party has. And a lot of people, I guess, I don't know, but many, many people in the the party and certainly influential people are Leninists. They don't believe in sharing power. And I think they're not wrong. Like in the sense that if they did go down this road, I think they do erode their power. Um, And I think there's also a lot in the past that were you to open up all the files, uh, it would be hard for the party to explain. Maybe it could, you never know. A lot of that feels like ancient history, 89 and certainly the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution feel like ancient history to people who are 25 years old and probably think it doesn't even matter given, given the, last, the track record of the last 30 years. It's hard to say. But I, I don't think they're wrong. Their ultimate, I, I feel like what I know of the party is their first goal, their first, second and third goal is to stay in power. It's just preserving power, like any party. And I think they see going down that path as risky uh, very risky and I, I think they're right. Um, and I think also in the case of Xi, I think he correctly saw a communist party that was in deep trouble. When I got back in 2011, I was shocked. Uh, the Hu Jintao period had been, as people refer to it as the lost decade. All these problems weren't addressed, including corruption. I was, you know, I was amazed at how much theft there was and people stealing with both hands and nobody believed in the party. It was like, it was like the mafia without omerta, really. And I think he correctly saw that it was very vulnerable, and the way to address it was to go back to some of the hardline policies that had worked in the past. And I think, you know, I'm not a student of Xi Jinping, and I don't know him as well as people who've written books about him at all, but I think that was, was very clearly a part of the calculation. And again, if you're trying to just stay in power and you have a party that's really atrophied, you wouldn't want to liberalize more you get yourself in real trouble if that's your sole goal.
0: We have a question from an anonymous viewer in Queens, New York, and a member of the Schwarzman Scholars Program team. Let's say that a new U.S. president is elected in November. What two recommendations would you advise the new president amid the COVID-19 complexity?
1: Gosh, um, That's a great question, and one that with everything else I'm covering here, I haven't had time to give a lot of thought to. I think there is a a possibility that a new president at least could try to—the same problems are going to be there, legitimate differences between the two countries, but with a fresh face, uh, it is possible— that um at least they could f- find more common ground but frankly xi jinping is going to have to also change as well i mean there's a reason it's this is not all the fault of the united states government he has pushed very hard he has been very aggressive south china is a great example chinese uh, people in the people in the political circles in, in china are surprised that obama didn't do more uh didn't do anything really to stop that so i think um, those problems are still going to be there, but maybe with a fresh face, um, you could try to reset things a bit. But I, I also think that President Xi has to make some changes in policy as well if he, if he wants to um, get along better with the U.S. government. Because what is remarkable is he's managed to alienate many, many support groups that, that China had and that the Chinese Communist Party, frankly, had, which is remarkable,
0: we have a question from Vivian in Hawaii. Do you think there will be a greater crackdown on social media apps after the COVID-19 pandemic because during the early days, people were using it to document the situation?
1: Sure, Why not? I mean, that's been the cycle. Yeah. Didn't, didn't work well. I mean, I think that they, there are periods, as we all know, that the government does allow people to blow off steam. And that's where social media can be very helpful to the government. And also, social media is very helpful because it can monitor public opinion, which is very important to the regime, even though it's authoritarian. But yes, I would expect another crackdown. I mean, this, this seems to be pretty much the M.O. of of the current leader.
0: We have another question from Matthew Chitwood, who writes, I lived in a remote village in Yunnan for the last two years with poverty. And he's also working on a book with poverty elimination efforts and infrastructure development. The broad sentiment was that people are materially better off than they've ever been. And they link their improved livelihoods directly to the CCP and Chairman Xi himself. How does this sentiment compare to the sentiments of your passengers?
1: I have passengers who would say the exact same thing. So Ray, who I was talking about earlier and who sent me that note offering to send me um, the uh, masks. Ray, Ray, one of the reasons he's very supportive of President Xi is Ray is from a dirt poor village in Hubei province. And he does see, he feels that President Xi understands what people go through, that he does care about um, you know, helping remove that chasm between urban and rural, particularly the East Coast and the rural areas. And so there are a lot of people who feel that way and they speak in the book. I mean, the thing that I tried to do in the book was let people just say how they feel um, and their views are nuanced. Uh, and they 're not uniform at all, very diverse, so i 'm not surprised to hear that at all. i yeah, absolutely have characters who feel that way there's another minor character in the book who um, I liked her because she comes from the provinces she 's not sure she can make it she 's a classic you know girl from the provinces in the big bright lights in big city of Shanghai or New York or london she 's not sure she can make it. She really struggles in the beginning, and in the end. I'm sitting with her at a university when she's finishing her master's in psychology and we're in a cafeteria eating. She's definitely found her identity. She's found her way she's going to be able to get a hukou. She'll be able to get an apartment. She's going to get a PhD. And one of the things she's so grateful for is the government has given her grants to do this. She's a poor girl from the provinces. Is she supportive of Xi Jinping? Of course she is. You know, my wife went to veterinary school on school, on student loans that were, um, you know, passed by under the Bill Clinton administration. Her family had been Republicans. She started voting for Democrats because Clinton helped her get through vet school. It's, it's no different. And so she, I think President she has done very good things in rural areas. And I think in that sense, domestically, it's been very shrewd policy and also good for ordinary people.
0: We are coming close to the end of our time, for which you're probably very happy since it's late for you. So I'm gonna combine several questions about the book. First of all, has it been translated into Chinese? What is the reception there? And do you think you will get a visa if you wanna go back?
1: Wow, all good questions. It has not been translated into uh, simplified Chinese, I don't believe it could be. Uh, not because it's a complicated book, it's pretty simply written, but I don't, I think that it's too candid. Uh, even though there's lots of positive things in the book about China and about the Communist Party, frankly. Uh, but I think we're in an era where it just couldn't be published. It is going to be published in complex, in traditional Chinese for the Taiwanese and the Hong Kong audience. It is being, I just met with my Japanese translator who have in London which was great, and he was a very, very good translator. I don't read Japanese, but he asked excellent questions. Um, and then in terms of would I be able to get a visa to go back, uh, we'll have to see. Uh, I, I think there may be the Shanghai Literary Festival at some point, it might be nice to go visit or, but we'll just, we'll see. Uh, I don't have any plans to go back right now. Uh, I'd love to, um, but that I, you know, that's up to the government. And I, I write what I write, I say what I say, and then the government can decide for themselves.
0: Wonderful. I'm going to do, oh, but it comes out backwards. Um, I encourage everybody to get the book. It's a terrific, fascinating read. Um, It is complex. There are things that make one feel uplifted and things that make one feel very depressed, quite like the world around us. Thank you very much, Frank, for joining us this evening. I wish you could see everybody and hear everybody applauding. Um, This has been a great session, and we're very appreciative. And thanks to the audience for joining us and to my colleagues who, behind the scenes, have been very helpful in making sure that it worked.
1: Well, Margaret, thanks for having me. And thanks for all the great questions. And stay safe and healthy. Bye.